writing and sort of you get to the last few verses and you sort of just skip on through it, right? You kind of go, well, all right, he's just saying goodbye, right? I don't really need to, that's not really important. Well, we're going to see that it's got some things that are going to be important for us today as well. Uh, some things for examples and, and whatnot. Uh, but nevertheless, as we look and we close this out today, let's look at verse number 23. It says, the very God of peace sanctify you holy, And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Uh, So as as we end this, what Paul addresses in verse 23 as he's bringing everything to a close, he has shown us all throughout the letter thus far the motivating factor that Christ is coming, and as well the motivating factor that because Christ is coming, our life is to be a life that is holy, sanctified, and and truly holy in sanctification. The two go hand in hand. Uh, We often use the word sanctification a lot. I think most of the time we say it because it makes us feel smart. But really what sanctification is this, is a life of holiness. It is growing in holiness. It is growing in maturity of the Christian faith. It is what is expected of us. I would even say it is what is required and commanded of every Christian. And for those who have true faith, there will be a continued, consistent growing and maturing and sanctifying process. But the idea of holiness and sanctification have one and the same sort of meaning. It's the idea to be set apart. To be set apart from the world, to be set apart even from ourself, and to be set apart unto God for His usefulness. And what we find is as these days are approaching... As you begin to continue to, to live our life waiting uh, the coming of the Lord, you know, what we've got to understand is that our life should look different. This has been the theme all throughout. He tells us even much instruction as we've dealt with in, verse, in chapter 5, rather, uh, all these different imperatives, all these different commands of how this is now to impact the daily practical living and walking of the Christian within the local church and how we are to help uh, bear one another's burdens, help the feeble-minded, and then he tells us all about the attitude and actions of what our life is to look like as we dealt with the rejoicing, the praying, the giving of thanks, quenching out the spirit, despising not prophesying, approving all things, abstaining from all appearance of evil. And he says here in verse 23 that we would be sanctified, holy, right? He says your spirit, your soul, your body, we talked about last week, and sort of just as a reminder that here he gives us the three parts of man. Right? He gives us the, the inner to the outer, uh, the spirit, our, our spirit, uh, as we uh, see, uh, let me hold your place here. Turn back with me to Romans 8 for a moment. Uh, Romans chapter 8 uh, tells us in verse number 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, notice the capitalization, the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit, capital, right? Holy Spirit, it's Himself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So what is our spirit? This is our innermost being. This is your relation with God. Now this is what separates man from beast. Ultimately that we have a spirit. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are made to know God, to walk with God, to commune in the fellowship with God. Now what we find is this, that the only way that we can have that communion and fellowship with God is how? We must be born again, right? We have a, a, a spirit that is dead in sins and trespasses, and we need to be quickened. 
is what the Bible calls it's another, another doctrinal word that we call regeneration. It is to be made alive. It is to be born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, how is one born again? You must repent and believe the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what Paul has preached. This is what Paul has shown to be our motivating factor of our Christian life and the motivating factor of waiting for his coming. Not only did he come and he die and he was buried and rose again, but that he will come again as he promised and as was prophesied long ago. Now, with this in verse 16 of Romans chapter 8, what we see is that the Holy Spirit who now abides and indwells every believer bears witness with our spirit, our holy of holies, if you will, within our very body, our, uh, the place where you know, the Holy Spirit indwells. What does he do? He says that he bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Every believer, the very first gift that we are given uh, besides grace and salvation, but at the very moment of receiving such grace and salvation by faith, trusting in the Lord, that He gives us Himself, He gives us His presence, uh, He gives us the very Holy Spirit. And what else comes along with the Holy Spirit? Not merely conviction, not merely encouragement and teaching and guiding, but perhaps one of the very first things that the Holy Spirit does is assures the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, we dealt with this uh, several weeks back uh, on Sunday morning, dealing with uh, the church of God being the family of God, and that we have a father, uh, we have this, this heirship, that we have a sonship, and that we are assured of our salvation. Not merely assured of our salvation, but assured of even the specifics, that we've been adopted by our Heavenly Father, who now owns us. We have been uh, called now uh, later, uh, in, chapter, in verse 17, uh, joint heirs with Christ. And so we have been given such assurance within our spirit because of the Holy Spirit of God. What else do we find is that throughout uh, Romans 8, uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, we find this whole idea of our very identity being in Christ. That our spirit, uh, our soul, our body from the inside to the outside uh, belongs to Christ, has been bought by Christ, and now is to be offered to Christ every day. Now, what is known about this is later on when you get into Romans, Romans chapter 12, we talk about presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, notice this. If we're going to give our body, we're going to have to give our soul and our spirit to the Lord. Our spirit must be in communion and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and being led of the Spirit. Uh, we find as well that our soul, this is our mind, our intellect, our emotions, uh, our, our personalities, our talents, our giftings uh, that has been given to us. Right? That is to then once more be offered up to be given as a living sacrifice. And then, of course, the body. We often think that they're dealing with the body uh, is just simply the outer man. Well, that's moralism. Moralism doesn't save and moralism does not sanctify. What we find is that the idea of body there in Romans 12, it is dealing with the whole entire being. Now, here's what we know. When we find the words spirit, soul, and body used in Old and New Testament alike, but especially for us New Testament believers, we find that at each point in time, if they're used separately without the one and the other, meaning this, if you just have our spirit, right, as we saw in Romans 8, or if you have body, uh, or uh, there in Romans 12, is that each one is typically referencing the entirety of our being. Now, it is giving a specific part of who we are, our spirit relating to God, our soul relating to ourself, our body relating one to another, because ultimately, here's what you can see about everybody else. You can see their body. You can hear what comes out of their body, right? You, you can uh, experience, uh, touch, taste, smell, right? All those things. But all you know is the outer body. We do not know truly the, the, the spirit of another 
uh, of another uh, believer, let alone another human being. This is why you and I can't be one another's Holy Spirit, nor this is why you and I can't go around and go in with every person that we don't like or we don't think likes us or whatever and go, well, they're not even saved. We can't do that because we don't know. The Holy Spirit has given us assurance of our salvation, not the assurance of someone else's salvation, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does for them. Now, this idea of this sanctification is that all, every part of who you are should be given to the Lord. Why? Because we were bought with a price. And so this is not merely to keep us from fornication as that, as that context and that passage would deal with, but this is to not merely keep us from sins, but it is to enable us to serve Him until He comes again. And he says that, we would, that every part, spirit, soul, and body, would be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what we often think. And we dealt with it last week at the very end. We think that sinlessness is our goal. Well, it would be nice to be sinless, wouldn't it? But here's the fact of the matter. As long as we're alive and on this world, we will not be sinless. However, what is the goal of the Christian? I believe the goal of the Christian, yes, we should desire to exterminate and to kill and to mortify every sin that is within us. Nevertheless, what we find is that is a never-ending battle until we either die or we are called out of here. And either way, as we've already dealt with in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, whether we die or whether we live, we are getting out of here one day. We're going to be with the Lord, so shall we ever be. Now, with this, here's what we've got to understand. This idea of blameless means this. It's the idea that when we look at our entire life, we look on the outside, there's nothing that is blatant. There is nothing that is outward in rebellion or an attitude uh, that says, ooh, that, that's not good, right? This is why he has it as a qualification for pastors and, and, and whatnot. Uh, it is not that uh, pastors are to be sinless because we can't be sinless. I, I sin as much as you, if not more. And if anything, it's worse because I know better than some of you, right? So here's, here's the thing. Blameless is critical. It is important. It means to live a life of, that is uh, w- without blame, where there's nothing in our life outwardly before folks. Now, you say, well, we're not trying to live for other people. No, we're not. But certainly in the world that we live in, we live as ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador ought to be blameless as we represent the Lord because we're representing not merely the Lord, but we're representing the fact that He came, He died, He rose again, and He's coming again. We represent His message. We represent the very Gospel everywhere we go because we claim to uh, participate and to partake of the Gospel. And here's what we find is that chapter 4 dealt with this holy, uh, idea of holy living. All throughout this letter has deal, dealt with this. And so we should see the same. Now, as we get into this idea of being preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded once more that the Lord is coming. But here's what verse 24 gives to us, and we'll press on here. It says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Here's what we find. God desires and promises to preserve us unto the coming of Christ. Those he saves, he seals. Those he seals, he keeps secured forever and forever and forever. The Lord knows that uh, those that are His. And what we can rest assured of is that there is no man that can pluck us out of the hand of the Lord, not even ourself, not the devil. There is no sin that can cause us to have God love us less, and there is no good thing that we will do that will cause God to love us more. What we find is that God stays the same. He, he changeth not. He is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. And because of this, our assurance of His promised return should be um, should be there. We should be assured that His promise will come true. Not only that He will come, but we should be assured here in verse 24 that because He has called us not merely to be saved, but to be set apart from the world and to serve Him until He comes again, 
that He will preserve us. He will do this work. Uh, McDonald writes, This seems to point to the judgment seat of Christ which follows the rapture. At that time, the Christian's life, service, and testimony will be reviewed, and he will be rewarded or suffer loss. Now, he will not suffer the loss of salvation. Rather, it is the loss of reward. Now, here's what I want to go ahead and do this morning. There's a lot of folks who think of this uh, this day where every one of us is going to stand in a line, right? And we could do it this morning, but uh, I don't think y'all probably want to do this just for illustration's sake. We, we roll down the, the projector screen, and every one of you gets in a line, one after the other, right? Nose to the back of somebody else's head. And one at a time, you stand there, you look up at the projector up in heaven, and the Lord clicks through all of your sins, and the Lord clicks through all of the bad parts, and the Lord clicks through all the stupid stuff you've done and I've done, and then goes, boop! Bops that one on the head and goes, next, right? How many of y'all have ever thought that that's what judgment's going to be like for the Christian? Yeah. How many of y'all just aren't willing to, to admit that, right? Yeah. Now, here's what we know. Those of us who are in Christ, when we meet, what judgment are we going to? We're going to a judgment for reward. We're going to the Bema seat. This is a place of reward. This is not a place of, I'm going to bop you in the head or take you all the way out of the line or send you to the back of the line, nor send you anywhere else. We are with the Lord. So this is our assurance. That is a good thing. So I can, we can sing uh, that, that because we've been justified by the Lord, that we still stand justified before Him even on that day. Now, here's the thing. Uh, my personal belief here, when we look at the idea of judgment, I don't believe it's going to be a long line where each one of us uh, knows on the other person, right, and, and waiting for our little turn. The Bible discusses and talks about Jesus there in Revelation and His purity and His glory and His holiness and His love and His mercy and all that He is because He's all those things all the time and not one more than, than, or less than the other. But what we find is that He is all those things perfectly and completely. What describes His, his character and His uh, countenance when John falls down and he sees Him there in, in Revelation 1 and it describes Jesus this way that uh, it describes his purity and his holiness the, from his feet all the way up, and it says that his eyes are as a flame of fire. What does fire do? See, it cooks, it warms, it heats. But fire also purifies, doesn't it? Believe what we're going to see here is that judgment with one look, the Lord will judge us. He will wipe away every tear, and we shall be with him forever, and it's going to be okay. Now, I, I, to be honest with you, many of us, we, we talk about this and we say, I, I can't wait to see Jesus, and, and we should have that mentality but yet there should also be the holy fear of the fact that we will look, even maybe for a moment, into those eyes as a flame of fire, and we will be judged. Now, will we not be judged to go to hell or to heaven? Rather, if we are there at the Bema seat, guess what? You made it. And not even by the skin of your teeth. You know why? Because you've got nothing to offer anyways. You've made it because of what He's done. You've made it because of His grace. You've made it because of His mercy. So therefore, because of His grace and because of His mercy, that He saved you, He seals you, He secures you. And on that day when He judges His people, He will judge certainly our motivation of our heart, our attitude. Uh, did we produce more wood, hay, and stubble for Him uh, that, that it was worthless, right? Did we live our Christian life more in the flesh than in the Spirit? Now, there's a lot of saved folks who live and do all their Christian work, all their Christian life in the flesh without ever truly knowing. that They miss out on so much, but nevertheless, that soul is still just as saved. The soul who had wood, hay, and stubble is still just as saved. So, what do we find here? What we find when we look at the judgment seat of Christ for those who are believers is we find that there will be many who will be given great reward. Well, what's the idea of reward? 
right? We often think about these crowns that we will receive, and yes, there will be. And we talk about casting them back at his feet, right? There's even a band, casting crowns, right? Uh, and it's not just picking up crowns and throwing them. It's the idea of casting them back at his feet. Now, here's, here's what we've got to understand as well. What is the idea of reward? There's not merely just God's going to go, all right, hey, we'll give you a crown. Here's a, here's a check, right? Here's a trophy. Uh, here's, a, here's a gold medal. Not, not, that's not the idea here. What is the reward for the Christian? Well, we've got to remember, it is, is going to be our service. It is going to be our responsibility there in the kingdom of God. When Christ returns, what is He returning to do? And what happens when we return with Him, right? right? When we come back on the white horses and all this stuff, right? We're coming back and He's going to set up His kingdom. Well, who rules and reigns with Him in His kingdom? Who judges even the demons? Who judges the nations? We do. Now, remember, Jesus gives uh, several illustrations in the parables. He talks about one, about the talents, right? This has the idea and pictures much of what that will be like. And we see uh, even the Beatitudes and things. It's going to describe what our kingdom living will look like. So here's what we find. We don't find something that we are to dread, but rather we find something that we are to long and look forward to. Yes, I know that I will have a great deal in my life that will be wood, hay, and stubble, that the Lord will burn up with a look of His eyes, but I do know this, that I will always belong to Him. And that there on that day, the Lord Himself is the one that has preserved me. It is the Lord who preserved me. Notice Galatians 2.20. Yet I but Christ, I live by the faith of what? Of my own? No. The faith of the Son of God. It is not our faith that preserves us blameless before the Lord. It is the Lord's faithfulness that preserves us blameless before Him. It is the Lord's faithfulness who has called us and who also will do it. This, of course, uh, reminds us, as we'll get into in just a moment of Philippians 1.6, we'll deal with that. But God's character is faithful to His people and His work in them, through them, and for them, now and forever. He was faithful before you got saved. He was faithful to save you. He was faithful to keep you saved. He was faithful to grow you. He was faithful to use you on this earth. He's faithful to come back for us. He's faithful to come back with us after the tribulation period. He's faithful to use us even after all that we presented to him might be wood, hay, and stubble. He's still faithful. Here's what we see. Green writes, The faithfulness of God is understood here as the surety that, the fulf- uh, that will fulfill the promise extended to His people. Knowing that such is the nature of God, the apostle can declare that He will do it. Their sanctification will be complete and extended to the entirety of their being. Here's what that means. Glorification. Our sanctification will lead to glorification, not because we sanctified ourselves, but because we've left this world and we have fought that good fight. We have run the race. We have finished our course. And the Lord, we stand now before Him and He will glorify us. Just as He justified us, He also sanctifies us and He also will glorify us because it is His work in us, through us, and for us through the precious work of His Son. He is able to bring about this sanctifying work within their lives, whatever their past and whatever situation they face in the present. Philippians 1.6, being confident, being assured, being trusting of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What is the day of Jesus Christ? That is a day that uh, Paul has talked about all in 1 Thessalonians. That day of His appearing, that day of His coming, that day of judgment, that day that we see Him face to face. Then in verse 25 through 28, we get into the final comments and as well requests of the church. Uh, when you ever, uh, for us, we don't write a lot of letters anymore. Do y'all, anybody still write letters? You might write cards, right, a little bit. But 
uh, phone calls, we think about this. If you're talking to your wife, well, I'd say this. If your wife's talking to you and you're at the grocery store and you're trying to get off the phone because you're trying to remember everything that she told you to get, what happens is there's last little, any last things? You want anything else? Are you sure? Do you want anything, need anything else, right? We do all these little, little things just to make sure that all of our bases are covered. Here's what Paul does at the end of his letter. Now, we know, of course, that in, in typical Paul fashion, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. But we back up to verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. What does Paul first and foremost ask? Paul asks for them to continue to pray for them because he knows the need to pray for other believers as well as have a dependence upon the Lord for the continued work of the Lord until the coming of Christ. Here's what we find. Brethren, pray for us. Now, when we think about Paul, at least when I think about Paul, I think about someone who spent all their time praying and preaching, seeing churches built and, and established, and writing letters, getting locked up, getting beat, uh, getting locked up again, writing a letter. Right? We think of all those things. You know what else we've got to remember? He was certainly a man of prayer. He was certainly a man who needed prayer. He saw the need of prayer in the ministry. I want you to know that the ministries here at Victory Way will only go as far as we pray. They will only go as far as we participate, but we'll only participate truthfully as much as we're willing to pray. Now, here's what we've got to see as well. Every one of us is in need of prayer. If we say, well, I don't really need, need prayer. I don't need anyone to pray for me right now. Things are going pretty good. Well, we should go ahead and start praying for you now because eventually things are going to go bad, right? If you're doing good right now, just wait because you won't here soon, right? And if you're doing bad here soon and things aren't going so good, well, just hold on. It too will pass. We don't know how long, and I'm not going to put a date on it because we don't know, but we do know this. It will pass. Every season is just a season, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. And we have all of those seasons, don't we? Now, with this, we find that in every season, we need prayer. What did he already say just a few verses back in verse 17? Pray without ceasing. Why? Because we should give ceaseless prayer to the Lord in the sense that we, our spirit uh, is able to be yielded as we trust the Lord by faith. We stay in communion and fellowship with the Lord. This is why I challenged you guys back when we looked at that verse. I said, all right, this week, and I, I never checked back up on it. I, I'm guessing you did the homework. I said, I want you to go home this week. I want you to take a few days, and every chore that you do around the house, I want you to pray, I want you to pray before you do it, while you do it, and after you do it. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you did or did not. If you didn't do it, now's a good chance to go home and do that. You know, here's what we find. The more that we pray, the easier it is to pray. The more that we pray, the more that we love to pray. The more that we pray and we love to pray, the more we find that we love the Lord and that we find that it's much easier to slip into communion and fellowship with the Lord. You say, well, sin is always there. Yes, it is, but it should not hinder us from going to the Lord. As a matter of fact, sin should drive us back to prayer, not keep us from prayer. Now, how many of us, myself included, all the time, you sin, you mess up, and you go, well, now I can't pray, right? I go, well, my day's ruined, right? I got I to gotta start over tomorrow. Don't start over tomorrow. Start over right now, right? Uh, d don't wait till the next day to try to get things right or to wait till the next day and go, well, tomorrow I'll be more worthy to come back to the Lord. No, right now, pray. Because brethren, pray for us. I would say this. One of the greatest ways that you can help is to pray for those who are pastoring, who are preaching, who are teaching in our Sunday school classes. Pray for our security team and pray for those who are running sound and pray for those who are cleaning and pray for every ministry. I loved it. Last Sunday night we had prayer meeting and we did something a little bit different where we all switched spots and we went and we sat in a seat that we never sit at, right? And that was fun, right? Oh, getting some people to pry, pry off those pews, right? And here's, here's what happened. Then we, we prayed while well, we sat in a pew, right? I'll use Tony's example. He's sitting right there. You always sit there. So we'll say he went over and sat where Tim sits, right? And so what did he do? He prayed for the, the pew in front of him, 
and for those that sit on it or those who need to sit on it. He prayed for the one that he's sitting on and for those that sit on it and those that need to sit on it and prayed for the one behind him. And then went to another one so he could do the same. The whole church, every pew was filled with prayer. Why do we do that? Because every one of us in this room today needs us to pray for another. Do you know why once a month we send out the prayer list and we stick it in the bulletin? Well, I can tell you this. It's not so Sharon has something else to do. It's not so you have something else to read. And it's not to make the bulletin any bigger than it already is. It is to get us to pray for one another. And here's what Paul asks. He says, brethren, pray for us. One of the greatest things that you can do as a believer is ask someone to pray for you. And one of the greatest things and ministries that you can do as a believer is pray for someone. We need prayer. I need prayer. The church needs prayer. And we find here that the ministry of the local church is dependent on prayer. All of life is dependent upon prayer. Then in verse number 26, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. Now, we can't skip over that, can we? No. The church is exhorted to greet each other with a genuine outward expression of a genuine inward love. All right, now who wants a kiss this morning? I'll wait. <laughs> Let me stick a cough drop it, right? Well, you say, well, what in the world, Pastor? You're offering out kisses. Now, here's the idea we got to understand. First of all, how do you and I greet each other today? Handshakes, high fives, right? Maybe a hug, maybe a fist bump, or as of yesterday, a tater, right? Oh, that's right. <laughs> we got that down, right? Now, here, here's what we see. Times have changed. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Not that y'all aren't kissable, but y'all don't want to kiss all this scruff, okay? Now, here's what we see. As the BKC writes, it was common in Paul's culture, as in many cultures today, by the way. And praise the Lord, we live here today where it's not so common. But you go other places, it's very common. It was common to greet friends with a kiss on the cheek. The men greeted other men this way, and the women did the same with other women. Now, the men didn't kiss the women, and the women didn't kiss the men, all right? If you're a man, the only woman that you should kiss is your wife. And if you are a woman and you are a wife, the only man that you should kiss is your husband, all right? Now, we continue on. He says that such a kiss communicated personal affection, not romantic love. By urging this physical expression of true Christian love in a form that was culturally acceptable in his day. We've got to understand this. What are you and I in Christ this morning? What are we? Huh? What? Say, brother and sister. That's right. Now, brothers and sisters don't kiss, do they? <laughs> we'll save that for some other states. <laughs> now, here's, here's what we find. Brothers and sisters in Christ, though, should have what? A genuine love for one another. You should be happy to see everyone that comes into this place today. Whether you know them or even like them, you ought to love them. Matter of fact, it is a mark of not just Christian maturity, but even a mark of our salvation that we love the brethren. Now, Here's what we've got to see is that there's a difference here in some love. We have agape love, right? This is the love of God for us, right? His sacrifice, self-sacrifice. It is how we're truly to live our life of love. And nevertheless, with one another, what are we to have a life of love like? Well, it's the word, y'all ever heard of Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love, right? You ever been to Philadelphia? Not so brotherly loving, is it, right? Now, here's what we see. 
idea of brotherly love, it is the love between a brother, between a sibling, between someone who, as we just read earlier in Romans chapter 8, is a joint heir with Jesus. So therefore, you should be thrilled come greeting time in the middle of service. You should be thrilled. It should not be a burden. Let me say this this morning, right? And don't shoot the messenger. But it shouldn't be a burden to want to either come early or stay after and talk with fellow believers. It should not be a burden to fellowship. It should not be a burden to greet one another. It should be a joy. Matter of fact, it is a joy of the Christian life. I can tell you this, it's going to be a whole lot easier to greet the ones that you don't know or that you don't like or that rub you wrong if you get to the verse before it. What's the verse before it? Brethren, pray for us. You start praying for those around you, it's going to be a whole lot easier to greet them. Now, here's what we see. There's another love. And Paul is not saying this love. As a matter of fact, it's called the eros love. It is the idea of erotic or romantic love. That's not it here. That's not why they're kissing each other. They kiss each other because they love one another in the Lord. They kiss each other as a reminder that they have been kissed by the truth and love and mercy of God. And What we find is that this unites and binds every believer and that we should have a genuine love one for the other. Especially as the day of Christ is approaching. Then he says, I charge you by the Lord Jesus that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. You know what that means? Read this epistle to everybody. Here's who this letter is for. The church at Thessalonians and everybody else. That means, yes, it was for them in their immediate context because it was written to them. It wasn't written to Victory Baptist Church. I don't know what our letter would look like, right? Probably about this long, I don't know. But here's what it says. It's for Victory Baptist Church just as well. It is to be read. It is to be preached. It is to be expounded upon. It is for the benefit of the body. They are then commanded to read this letter to the church. It is for their exhortation and their edification. The Word of God is central to the life of the Christian and the church. Matter of fact, you take the Word of God out, there is no life in the Christian. You take the Word of God out, there is no life in the church. This is why you must be in the Word of God on your own or else as a Christian, it does not matter how many times you are here under the sound of preaching and teaching, if you're not in the Word outside of preaching and teaching in the local church, you are going to be starving yet still. Right? Here, <clears throat> our ministry, our goal, the desire of the local church is as we gather, we gather around what? The Word of God. We gather around to be filled up by the Word of God so that when we can go out and obey the Word of God and we can preach the Word of God and we can tell others about the Word of God and we, while we are outside of these walls, have our devotions, whether morning or evening, sometime in that day to get with the Word, to get in the Word and the Word to get in us, right? That's what we need. That's what motivates us. That's what helps us to live these things that Paul has called us to live thus far. As he closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You know what amen means? Let it be, right? Even so, yes, 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 yes. Amen. I agree. I am in full agreement. Here's what Paul says at the end of this thing. Everything that I just wrote from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 28. Now, he didn't write in chapters and verses, by the way. This is a letter. He says amen to it. Why do we say amen in church? So you agree. So you just remember that. If I don't hear you saying amen, I'm just going, oh, they just don't like it. They don't agree. <laughs> no. <clears throat> now here's what we think. Amen is a stamp going, everything that has just been said. Now what has just been said? To sum up this and we'll close. <clears throat> By God's grace, the Christian is to operate their life faithfully united to the church of God as an instrument that is holy unto the Lord until the day of death or departure through the coming rapture of the church, the bride and body of Christ. 
Here's what we find. The grace of our Lord Jesus is with us now and is with us forever. The grace of God saved us, sealed us, secured us, sanctifies us, and one day will send us home to be with Him. Here's what we find. And all of life is by His grace. By grace. Therefore, because of that, as we await the coming of the Lord, may we learn taste His graciousness and to see that He is good, that He is gracious, He is faithful, He is kind. And then we see the grace that He is coming for His own and that we will be with Him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You. Grateful, Lord, that we could study Your Word. Grateful that we could see all that is in it. Help us now, Lord, by faith to have it applied to our heart by the power and work of Your Holy Spirit through the working of Your Word. Pray that You prepare us now for this time. Lord, that we would fellowship one with another, that we would pray for one another, that we would I encourage one another as we sing to you and we worship you and, and, and glorify you in all things, Lord. God, our hearts today, Lord, unite us together. And Lord, that you would uh, simply bless us with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.